You're listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. Enjoy this exciting message by John Mark McMillan. Hello, everybody. How are you doing? Why don't we stand up and read a scripture together? Let's read a scripture. This is from Matthew 25. We've talked about this a couple of times the last couple of years that we've mentioned this scripture, but let's uh, say it together. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have in abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Everybody says amen. <laughs> well, let me pray real quick. Father God, maker of all that we see, maker of all that we don't see, author of our future and our very present joy, you are the writer, the craftsman, the author and finisher of our faith. You are what it means to believe, and we rest in your heart this morning. It is your faith that we live by, not by our own, and we give ourselves to your purposes again in this moment. Amen. You guys can sit down. So I uh, I watched this TED Talk recently, or actually I listen to TED Talks like when I'm cutting the grass, just information, loading information into my brain, I guess, um, just keeps me entertained, but... Um, I watched this TED Talk recently, listened to this TED Talk recently about a social experiment. So this sociologist bought, um, you know, between $100 and $200 worth of items off of eBay, right? And uh, he didn't mention what they were, but they were just sort of everyday items. And um, he had several friends he knew who were authors write stories about these items, um, not famous stories, didn't make the... Um, items sound famous or anything, but wrote stories about these items and he relisted the items and in the description, he listed the stories. So the $150, $200 worth of items he bought, they relisted and they resold it for over um, $8,000. The only difference was the stories. The stories. Um, I don't know if you know this, but product placement is a billion dollar industry. A billion dollar industry to get your soft drink in a movie or on television or in a blog. Billions of dollars is spent on doing that. Why? Have you ever thought about why? Why that is? I think it's because human beings have an insatiable desire for narrative. Humans have an insatiable desire for narrative. In modern times, I believe we foolishly lumped all our stories into one ridiculous pile, a category we've erroneously decided to call simply entertainment, as if our stories were simply a form of trivial recreation and not the things which bring value to our very lives, the things that fill our living days. Our stories might even possibly actually be the fiber of our lives, if you think about it. Your greater story might be your ghost, your spirit, your conscious self. In a sense, your narrative might be you, if you think about it. What are you if not your story? All the greatest desires, or the greatest desire of all people is to share their lives, to share their stories, right? 
What happens to a person if they're not able to do that or don't feel like they're able to share their story? What kind of person do they become when they can't share who they are? It's what friends do at the golf course and at the hair salon. It's what families do on holidays and reunions. They relive their stories and catch up on news stories while the kids run around with capes and swords and plastic tiaras making up their own stories. It's why we're willing to pay $25 for popcorn to go see a movie. That's what we're looking for in the bleak abyss of the social networks and what advertisers pay billions to hijack. The bleak abyss of social networks. <laughs> it's a thing that distinguishes us from the animals, and it's a thing that gives us dignity. There are few better ways to respect and dignify a person than to hear their story. As a side note, the word worship literally means to express value or actively love what is valuable to God. That's what the word worship means. People are supremely valuable to God. So to simply hear their story and listen to their songs even and especially the sad ones and the bad ones, is a form of worship. To acknowledge the God-sparked image in another person is a very, very worshipful act. And so I think we've, this is a side note, but I think we've missed something when we had this idea that worship is all vertical, they say. First of all, that metaphor doesn't work anymore because we don't live on a flat earth. Right? So... Heavens, the word we get from the Bible says heavens. It literally means the stars. The metaphor is God is above and in the universe. And now we realize we live on a sphere. So that means God isn't just up. He's everywhere. The metaphor is not up. The metaphor is everywhere. God is all around us. Continue with my previous thought, though. The New Testament says that Jesus never spoke without a parable or a story. Jesus was a teacher and a storyteller. Let's talk about the Bible for a second, if you, if you, if that's okay with you. The Bible is a library of books. Within this library, we have many genres of literature, but did you know that half of your Bible is written in poetry? Half of your Bible is poetry. Half of the written Word of God is poetry or written in poetic stanza. Not only is half the Bible poetry, but the large, the largest book in the Bible is argu- arguably the largest is a book of musical songs. Obviously, I'm talking about the book of Psalms. Some say Jeremiah is a little bigger word for word, but I think Psalms has more chapters than Jeremiah does. But the largest book in the Bible, arguably the largest book in the Bible, is a book of songs. I think this is important because it speaks to the very nature of the Word of God. It speaks to the very nature of the Word of God. The difference in a poem and an essay is that the poet or storyteller, the poet or the storyteller, are as or more interested in how a thing is said than what is said. To them, the medium is the message. The way you say something is what you're saying. The way you say something is what you're saying. Do you guys remember the movie Juno? Remember Juno? The, um, the girl, she's pregnant and, uh, it's unexpected and, uh, some people encourage her to consider having an abortion and she goes to check out her options 
And she runs into another girl and they talk about it. And the girl ends up telling her that the baby already has fingernails. And that's what changed Juno's mind was the fact that the baby had fingernails. It sounds like a trivial detail, but that detail made the baby real to her in a way that simply saying the baby is real couldn't. The fingernails told a story. And this is what poets and storytellers do. They don't tell you what to think. They invite you into a different world to experience it for yourself. They don't tell you the baby is a real person. They tell you the baby has fingernails. A poet or storyteller wants to hack your brain and invite you into a conversation in a way that you might be able to inhabit their world. They want you to engage with the subject matter, not simply observe it or understand it. A reporter wants to give you information, but the poet wants to give you his or herself. This is an important aspect of God. More than information, God wants to give you himself. In the charismatic tradition, we say it this way, God wants a relationship. Well, what is a relationship if not to enter into a person's story and let them into yours? Part two. Part two has a title. Title is God wants your body, not just your mind. God wants your body, not just your mind. And John 1, it says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus was the story of the invisible God embodied in physical matter. Jesus was the physical manifestation of the heart, intentions, and narrative of God in a body. Words tell us a story, and Jesus was the maker's words in the flesh. At Christmas, we celebrate Jesus becoming a baby, the word becoming a human baby. In the Gospels, we read about how Jesus ministered and lived as a human man, as a person. At Easter, we celebrate Jesus' death, where he died like a man. And we celebrate his resurrection, where he was raised with still on scars on a very human-like body. And then, after he was raised from the dead, he gives us the opportunity to become what we call the body of Christ. The body of Christ. God is looking for a body. God is looking for a body. In the same way God looks like Jesus, the Spirit looks like you when you're producing the fruit of the Spirit. The Spirit looks like you when you're producing the fruit of the Spirit. When you're unloading love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control into the physical universe, then the Spirit has embodied himself in you. God is looking for a body, not just a mind. God wants to press into the physical world through three-dimensional physical beings who have weight and take up space and move objects around. All this to say, what if belief is somewhat physical? What if belief is somewhat physical? Peter says, faith without action is dead. 
James says, true worship is caring for the poor. What if a faith that doesn't eventually manifest itself in your physical world isn't actually faith? If you say God is generous, but you haven't realized your identity as a giver, then have you fully or actually believed that God is generous? If you say you believe that God loves you, but you look in the mirror and say nasty things to yourself, then have you yet fully believed that he loves you? Certainly this is a process, but faith and spirit always come to fruition in the physical world. Otherwise, we're talking about something else. Because remember, God loves the world. For God so loved the world. So, I have a, I promise this is connected, all right? I have a mild fear of sharks. Not enough to keep me from having fun or doing what I need to do. You know what I mean? I'm in the water. I'm in the water a lot. But while I'm in the water, not once every 60 seconds that thought crosses my brain. So they had two attacks three miles down at Oak Island last year. Think about the movie Jaws. Right? But I do think about it. I read some, some statistics recently about shark attacks. Do you want to hear them? On average, there is less than one shark attack death every two years in the United States. On average, there is less than one shark attack death every two years in the United States. In light of that statistic, here are all things that are more dangerous than sharks. You ready? Stoplights are more dangerous than sharks. Traffic lights are responsible for about 2,000 deaths in the U.S. each year. Well, we assume from people running them, not the lights themselves. But coconuts. Falling coconuts cause about 150 deaths annually. You know, while you're keeping your eye out for sharks. Mosquitoes, and if you're, if you have a, if you, if you, you know, familiar with other parts of the world, you realize mosquitoes are dangerous. They carry malaria and they kill 800,000 people a year. High school, college football is more dangerous than sharks. 12 people die a year playing football in high school or college. Champagne corks are more dangerous than sharks. They kill 24 people each year. So don't be a show-off. Um, tripping. Almost 6,000 people die from tripping and falling every year at home. Lunch is more dangerous than sharks. Your own teeth are more dangerous than a shark's teeth. Choking on food is the cause of death for about 3,000 people every year in the United States. Raw meat. So the things you eat are more dangerous than the things that want to eat you, apparently, because 5,000 people die every year as a result of consuming uncooked Meat. Cows. About 20 people are killed by cows in the United States every year. Wind kills about 104 people every year. Bees kill about 100 people every year. Horses kill about 20 people every year. The cold kills about 600 people every year. Ladders kill 355 people every year. Hot tap water kills about 100 people every year. Ants kill about 50 people a year. Dogs, 30 people a year. 
Icicles, falling icicles kill 15 people every year on average in the United States. Hippos claim the lives of 29,000 people, 2,900 people a year. (laughs) Almost 3,000 people die every year from hippo attacks. Being left-handed, some claim that 2,500 deaths are caused every year when left-handed people attempt to use products designed for right-handed people. While we can't confirm the statistic, it's true that left-handed people are five times more likely than right-handers to die in accidents. Lightning kills 24,000 people a year. Vending machines. 37 people were killed trying to get a snack from vending machines between 1978 and 1995. That's an average of 2.18 deaths a year, making this cause of death way more likely than shark attacks. Jellyfish kill 40 people a year. Beds kill 450 people a year. 400 people, 450 people on average die falling out of bed every year. In the movie Sharknado, 16 people die. It's more people in that one movie died from a shark tornado than on average the last eight years in the United States. I don't know if that counts, but Sharknado. <laughs> I know the facts, but the truth is that it's still something I can't help think about when I'm swimming around in the ocean with my kids. And there is a slight risk because there are shark attacks, but they're just less likely than I believe. So what is it that I actually believe, the facts or the story? My body still believes the story, not the facts. I'm still more afraid of sharks than coconuts or champagne corks. And I think that is a key to the nature of belief. There is something of it to be discovered in the place where the inner life meets the outer life. No one has yet made a movie about a prehistoric champagne cork. But the narrative of the shark is so much more interesting. And that's why it's more terrifying. It's just... Traffic lights are just not, there's not enough of a story at the traffic light. There's so much more of a story with the shark, and so that's why it sticks with you. But what if believing isn't as much like swapping out facts on some shelf in the back closet of your mind, but more like engaging in a narrative in a way that transforms the way you live life in the physical world? Amen. Because I think you can set the correct information, correct in quotation marks, correct information on that shelf in your mind and say you believe it and still never actually change. Or you can be a little confused about the facts and still step into God's story in a way that over time transforms the way your life is articulated in physical reality. I think we all know this is true. Every day we see people who quote scripture and profess Christ by name, but give themselves to stories that reflect nothing of the story of Christ. They're fearful, mean-spirited, exclusive, power-hungry. They're paranoid and full of condemnation. But what if Jesus was serious when he said we need to believe like children? Not meaning that we need to think the way they think, but meaning that belief is something different. What if he wasn't saying children know more than you? What if he was saying that faith 
is something other than what you think it is? What if faith is more about changing the posture of your heart than adhering intellectually to a new rule of law? What if faith is about cultivating your story in a way that manifests a new kind of life in your world over time? You have an internal dialogue that formats your reality. What is your dialogue like? What kind of stories do you tell yourself? What kind of things do you tell yourself? What would you, would you say those kinds of things to somebody else? How would you treat the person that God loves? How do you treat yourself? What if you're not writing your story, but your story is writing you? Let's look at Matthew 25 again. Can we put that back on the screen? 42 For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have in abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. I'm going to read it one more time. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have in abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. I don't think Jesus was talking about two different people. I don't think Jesus was talking about two different people. I think he's talking about two different stories. But the story you choose to live from is the one that authors your future. The story you choose to live from is the one that authors your future. If you're the one who has, then you will have more. But if you're the one who doesn't have, then nothing you want will ever really satisfy you. If you define your life by what you have, then your posture towards the universe will be one that attracts more. If you define yourself by what you don't have, then your posture towards the universe will be one that repels good things. This isn't a trick. It's not going to make your life perfect. It's not going to make your life perfect. But you can assume one of two postures based on the story that you tell yourself or the story that you allow God to tell you. You know, you can even see this in science. As a side note, there's actually a scientific principle called the Matthew 25 principle. Check it out if you get a chance. So here's my question, I guess. What narrative do you live from? What story do you live from? What story do you tell yourself? What is your story? What story do you allow? How do you identify yourself? How do you see yourself in that story? Or have you ever even thought about it before? How about this for a story? How about this for a narrative? It's my translation of God 316, John 316. God 316. For John so loved the world. It works. God 
God loved the cosmos so much. Greek for world is cosmos, by the way. God loved the cosmos so much that he gave his only natural-born son. Obviously, it was a supernatural act, but he was the natural projection or image of God, the only one. God loved the cosmos so much that he gave his only natural-born son, and whoever enters into his story would not be wasted, but step into a perpetual state of living. For the maker did not send his son into the world to chastise, ridicule, or damn his people and creation. But that through him the world might be put right. If you are not living from that story, if that's not your story, then I would suggest... You try it out. Because I think it's a really great place to live from. It's better than that story you tell yourself when you're looking at the mirror. It's better than that story you tell yourself when you're looking at your bank account. It's better than the story you tell yourself when you look over your past and you list all of your little failures. All of your little failures. But there's a verse in the Bible that says that God has forgotten your failures. But I actually think it's better than that. He hasn't just forgotten them. He actually wants to take your failures and he wants to turn them upside down and he wants to use even your sin and the worst parts about you. He wants to actually flip them upside down so that those things not only don't condemn you, those things get transformed in your life in a way that they become living streams of water and goodness. And he wants to bless you in the areas where you have failed. He wants to bless you in the areas where you have failed. So if you would, stand up. And I want to pray. I wrote this little prayer. I want to pray this over us. Father God, we give our hearts again to the great fullness in this moment. To the great fullness of this moment. And again, we offer you the keys to our inner lives and reins to our outer lives. We lay down our striving about belief. And once again, we freely accept the gifts that come to us only from your son, Jesus, who offers us not only something to believe, but the faith itself to believe it. His faith. And again, we offer you our story and ask that you would open our eyes to the script you're writing, our ears to the symphony you're composing. Open our taste buds to the wine you're pouring in our hearts to transformational love and eternal kinds of life. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, guys. I really, when I think about story, I really love the story of Jesus. How about you? When um, I think so many people struggle, a significant number of people struggle with their identity, who they are. And I was sort of meditating on that this week. 
How many of you think about things at night you don't think about during the day? That's the way it happens with me sometimes. But I was just thinking about how unique the gospel is. I was thinking about how unique the story of Jesus really is. And when, when you look at the death, um, when you look at the death of Jesus, the, 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 um, the sacrifice, the offering of Jesus on our behalf, one of the things that began to register with me was that a king gave his life to save my life. A king. Actually, the king of kings. The most prominent individual anywhere ever. And then when you think about the Lord's Prayer, you think about Jesus saying, how does he teach us to pray? What are the first two words? Our Father. Now, we think Jesus is standing there, say, I'm Jesus, say, Our Father. And we're all together as people, together saying, Our Father. But what he's really saying is, My Father, Robin, is your Father. Which means I'm in his family. I'm in his family. I'm in a royal family. I'm in a, a, I'm in a family that is a historic, remarkable family. A king gave his life for me. And then the reason he did was because I was originally in the garden, a unique part of that family, but through the fall, this was our story, this is the human story, through the fall we lost that relational place we had with God that was unique and powerful and wonderful and full of destiny. And so Jesus came back to tell us, I am reclaiming you to not give you value, but my story is I have come back to reveal your value, to show you who you are, to show you where you came from, to show you how far you have fallen from the royal family you were intended to take your place in. Does that make sense? And that's, that's the story of Jesus. And see, he gives us our identity. He shows us. I think about the whole thing about the lost coin and the, the prodigal son and the lost sheep. The one thing that's really struck me about the lost coin was just like a hundred dollar bill. If you lose a hundred dollar bill, it doesn't lose its value because it hasn't been discovered yet. It has value. And see, the thing about the gospel and the gospel of Jesus, the story of Jesus, what Jesus did does something no other religion does. It reveals to us who we are, where we came from, how much we're valued, and who it is we can become as we pay attention to who he is and, and what he, what he tells us. And so, I've, uh, was reading, actually, I had a note about a story of Jesus. We, we read the gospels. When you read, do you know it's impossible to, um, 
Okay, the Lord says, Don and I were talking this morning, be perfect even as I am perfect. That's what God says. How many of you think it's easy to be perfect as God is perfect? Now, it's impossible, quite honestly. And see, the reality of the gospel is when Jesus died, you died, and he didn't die to make you better. He died to take you completely out, to put himself in your place so that he could begin as you let him and lean on him and trust him. He begins to express his character, his faith, Galatians 2.20, live by the faith of the Son of God through through your life, which is a powerful message. There's no other religion, Buddhism, Hinduism, Mohammed, none of those people do anything like that. They don't do anything remotely like that. But Jesus shows you who you are, and, and, and really he does it through the power, the power of his story. But when you look at the Beatitudes and the calling we have and how it is we're supposed to live, you know, I, I, I say, well, who in the world could ever live like that? Let's say that together. Who could ever live like that? Well, here's the answer. Someone like Jesus. He did by suffering the ultimate tragedy. What is that? It's when the worst possible thing happens to the best possible person. An innocent man who is completely sinless, who is working on behalf of only the good and the truth is broken and destroyed for unjust reasons by self-righteous and jealous, both political and religious leaders, and that early and young in the prime of his life, and he was betrayed to boot. You see, that is the ultimate tragedy. And so the story that redeems us is the story of a man, Christ Jesus, who's also the Son of God, who was willing to suffer the ultimate tragedy. There's no other tragedy in life that could have compared to the tragedy we find in the story of Jesus. But it hasn't, has a happy ending. He was raised from the dead. Let's say that together. Jesus was raised from the dead. And one of the things I like about Jordan Peterson, he says that the resurrection proves that living a life of sacrifice now ensures that your future will be better. In other words, you can be depressed if you want to, but that's not a good way to go about things. You have to do the best you can with what you got. That's the story of Jesus. You have to go through whatever you go through, but you need to go through it in the way that your life, your heart, your viewpoint is so radically impacted by not just the story of Jesus, but the spirit of Jesus that was raised from the dead that can energize us and cause us to live through whatever these things are we're going through. Anyway. I got to preaching. And, uh, one of the reasons was we, we had, we needed more time for the, the kids ministry. And, uh, that was very good, John Mark. Thank you. Now, part of, part of my dynamic is I know these teachers, they, they prepare for these kids. How many of you appreciate what our teachers do? Do for your kids. Yeah, it's so, it's so good. And so, 
as I'm, I'm sort of keeping the time because it frustrates them when we all go back there before they're, they're done with the kids. And so what I was doing earlier, not, but we can't monitor messages to a certain length of time. They just are what they are. And that's, that's a good thing. But as I was sitting there earlier before John Mark spoke, I began to ask the Lord, Lord, we're probably going to have some extra time after the message. Is there anything, um, you want to do for anyone? And I felt like he gave me a number of words of knowledge for healing. How many of you would like to hear what these are? And yeah, well, the first one was incessant coughing. You have a cough and I would like for you to stand up or respond some way. Um, it could be connected to an allergy. Anyone? Now, here's a very interesting thing. How many of you were here the weekend when the crowd was not our biggest? And I said, um, there's someone here the Lord wants to help you. You have a call to missions in Scandinavia, and there's been a certain amount of frustration about it. Well, that's a, that's a ridiculous word of knowledge for a small, smaller group of people, right? Two people responded. Do you know why two people responded? It's because God gave me that to say, and he knew they were here. This, these aren't parlor tricks, right? No, these are God wanting to help people. And, and the way you express your faith is you respond when you hear something that you believe applies to, to you, and then we'll pray, and I believe God will begin to change what's going on with you. Um, the other thing has to do with infections. It may have to do with some kind of infections that... That ladies get. I don't know much about that. Well, <laughs> um, also, there's someone here and you've got a, a difficulty with one of your toes and it affects the way you walk. I know that's a little weird. Please remain standing if you're responding here. No one has that. Now, here's a very interesting and unique thing that's happened and I've learned over over time is usually that person will come up to me after it's over, as did one of the um, person from the Scandinavian thing. And I'm happy to uh, to minister to you that way. But if you express your faith here, there's a bigger bang for your buck. God will touch you according to your faith, right? So don't. Now, if you want to come sneaking up later, I'm good. I'm not going to say anything to you bad. I'll pray for you and we'll help you. But it's better if you respond. Does that make sense? Now, here's another one. Head trauma. You you may have had some kind of a concussion. You may have hit your head and it affected. There you go. It affected the way you think or your vision, but it's affected your capacity somehow. Anyone else? Now, I know some of you people, just by the way you behave, been hit in the head. I'm just playing. <laughs> Let's just wait a second. Yeah, it affected your memory, didn't it? Also, I know this is a big one, but I know a bunch of people are being affected by this, so this is not 
deeply, profoundly spiritual, but you're been pretty, you're affected by allergies. And I think the Lord wants us to break off, I would say, the curse of allergies. So if you have trouble with seasonal allergies or even food allergies, um, Okay, let's uh, gather around these people and ask permission to lay hands on them because that's one of the biblical ways of being healed. And we're going to pray our way through. First of all, I don't believe God makes people sick. I think sickness has got more to do, at least in part, with the devil and demons. And so we're going to take authority over Every demonic, yes. In the name of Jesus, this is our story. When Jesus rose from the dead and he ascended to the right hand of the majesty on high, he sent back the Holy Ghost who authorized us in his place to bind every evil thing now. And we do that in Jesus' name. Every demonic thing we bind and we just release healing in the name of Jesus. We break uh, we break the curse of allergies now in Jesus' name. John Schroeder, the power of God's all over you, buddy. I don't know if you know it. Sometimes that happens. You don't know it till you, somebody tells you, but just receive. But we break the power of allergic reactions to food, to medicine, to things that float in the air, to pollen, to seasonal discomforts. We break that thing. We command the coughing, the sneezing, the swelling, all of those things to cease in the name of Jesus. Thank you, Lord. We ask for any uh, infections. Lord, we ask for those to be healed in Jesus' name. Release power. The power is in the, in the name of Jesus and the blood of Jesus. We release that power now. We ask that all of that be healed, that it be ended and stopped now in, in Jesus' name. I don't remember anything about someone's toe, but Lord, we ask that you would heal that right there, right there, right there. Lord, straighten that thing out. Let me give a faith-building testimony. One time I was asking the Lord for words of knowledge, and the Lord said, hangnail. And I said, Lord, I'm not getting up there and saying anything about a hangnail because that's too stupid and too little. And he said, well, if you don't do the hangnail word, I won't give you the, the big word. And I said, okay. And he said, damage from steroids, which I had no knowledge of. So I said, damage from steroids and hangnail. Well, a guy who had been cutting his grass tore half his thumbnail off, and it was hanging, and we prayed, and God completely healed, completely. That's powerful. Especially if it's your thumb. Healed it completely. I mean, it went back and it was healed. It was, and then the thing about, um, steroids, a young fella, two guys came up. I'd simply prayed for him. I told him to sit down under the presence of God as he was healing them. And it turned out he had brain damage. He'd lost, the steroids had affected 
I think it's his right, the right lobe of his brain, whichever side of the brain affects motor skills. He couldn't play the drums anymore. He couldn't play golf anymore. And that weekend he shot like an 89 and played the drums again after being prayed for. And when he went to the doctor, the doctor said, what has happened to you? He said, I've just been taking my medicine, which was not the whole truth. The doctor said, well, after an MRI or whatever, he says, it looks like you have a new brain, which is really stupid, but it was God. God healed him of brain damage. And I felt unanointed. It doesn't matter how you feel. And so for uh, your toes, toes straighten up. In the name of Jesus, and enable the gate to remain, the back problems to go, the hip to adjust, and all the things associated with that in Jesus' name. Now, let's do a little exercise. How many of you got prayed for? Raise your hand. Let's say, I believe that God is touching me now, and I'm being healed in his name. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Anybody feel any different? Any, anything noticeable? I know John Schroeder's memory began to come back the minute he responded to the word. <laughs> Anybody else wave at me? You're no, noticeable there in the back? Too? Okay. Well, Lord, we agree with your healing virtue. Thank you so much for it. And thank you for the teachers in the back. Give them about five more minutes. If anyone else needs prayer, if you'll come forward on this side of the auditorium, we have a team that would be glad to pray for you more or some more. And uh, thank you, John Mark. Let's give it up for John Mark this morning. You've been listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. For more information on this message and other resources, visit queencity.church.